Our guest today says that the United States spends more on astrology than astronomy, that we suffer from anosognosia. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Kao. Originally trained as a psychiatrist, John has gone on to get an MBA, teach at Harvard Business School, Yale, and MIT, just to name a few. He's now a successful entrepreneur and the author of Innovation Nation. Welcome to ReachMD, John. Thanks. Now, John, in your book, you talk about how psychiatry is useful in the study of military affairs. How so? Well, I think, first of all, warfare is a very human activity, and there's a lot of psychology in whether people are seeing the same picture of things or not, which is often a precursor to war because people don't and they misunderstand each other. There's also this famous fog of war that von Clausewitz talked about where two people can see the same thing and see it completely differently. So I think having an understanding of human nature and of how people think and how they perceive things is pretty fundamental to understanding why things go right or wrong in a military context, but also You know, in terms of designing the kind of systems that exist today, you know, you have really complicated human-in-the-loop technology-based systems. And increasingly, digital technology and network technology speed things up and change the level of complexity of decision-making. So, again, it's all about people, people sitting in a command center making decisions or people in a very ambiguous condition in the field trying to figure it out quickly and faster than the other guys. I think psychology is pretty fundamental. Now, what do you mean by that we suffer from anosognosia? Well, anosognosia is the neurological syndrome of not recognizing that you have an illness, even if you have obvious symptoms of one. So, you know, neurologists and psychiatrists are familiar with patients coming in with florid physical symptoms who don't believe they're sick. And I think that's, in a way, the condition of the U.S. right now with regard to innovation. We've always thought of ourselves as being the innovation leaders for the world. And in fact, you know, in the 20th century, in the so-called American century, that was largely true. You know, we came out of World War II as the only superpower that was unscathed. We had, at that time, 50% of the world's industrial output came from the U.S. We had all of the universities, and we were the place that people wanted to be. So, you know, if you fast forward to 2008... We're in a situation where many countries are racing for a new kind of economic and social high ground that's formed by the ability to innovate and where many of our absolute advantages like Silicon Valley style venture capital or kind of sunk works model of organizing innovative activity or our great universities, though all those absolute advantages have become quite relative. And, you know, unlike Sputnik, so Sputnik was an example of a situation where America was quite traumatized by the notion that another country could put a a satellite up in advance of the U.S. And, you know, whether we were, in fact, behind the Soviet Union or not, the fact of the matter was that we launched a large-scale, coordinated national innovation effort. It was the first and, sadly, the last time when we did that. Now, today, I would argue that our situation is actually pretty serious in the sense that many of the foundations of our innovation economy, like K-12 public education, 
the funding of science, the fiscal policies that support innovation and, and entrepreneurship, the condition of our capital markets, the fact that you know we as a country are kind of short of cash right now, we've become a debtor nation, and our free cash flow, to use a business term, to invest in the future is quite limited. You know, these and many other factors have combined to create a situation where America, over the next couple of decades, may stop being an innovation superpower in preference to countries like China or little well-run countries like Finland and Singapore and Chile that are racing forward like jackrabbits to basically become innovation leaders. So I think that we as a country are in a state of denial. I think that, you know, it's, it's come through in this current presidential election cycle where aside from certain kind of ritualistic acknowledgments of how bad the education or the, you know, the innovation problem might be, it's just part of a long list of problems. You know, there is not a lot of good critical thinking that's going on in this country about the subject, which is why I decided to invest the time to write this book. I was personally very upset about the indifference that this issue, this all-important issue, in my view, is, is being treated with, and so I wanted to reverse that. If you just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Kao. We are discussing what John calls our country's anosognosia. John, let's focus on healthcare for a, for a minute here, and specifically the development of new drugs. It seems like to me we have a bunch of Me Too medications and not truly innovative products. Do you think that's true? Well, it may be true, although I think there's plenty of kind of expeditionary drug development work going on, especially in, shall we say, medium sized or more entrepreneurial companies. But I think that if you are going to commit the kind of resources that are required to develop a new drug, you can't afford to take a lot of risks. So, you, you know, the paradox is that you'll, you'll go for sure things, but at the same time, there are no sure things. And so, you know, maybe the, the shift in the ecosystem for drug development is an indication of the kind of risk-taking that, you know, for instance, the incumbent companies are no longer willing to take. So that's why a lot of them have gotten out of basic research and are basically innovating through their mergers and acquisitions activities when they buy little companies that show some promise that reach the threshold of some you know economic viability but they're not going to these large companies won't necessarily take the risk to do that development work anymore so it's a big problem because you know we obviously are all the beneficiaries or the victims of whether drug discovery occurs in an efficient way or not any ideas on how we can change this i think that one alarming symptom of our development of new therapeutics is that a lot of smart young people in the United States are leaving life sciences. And they're leaving life sciences for all kinds of reasons, mostly having to do with the fact that you know, they can't make a living doing it. The funding of science is considered to be increasingly a non-even playing field. Or they're going to places like Singapore or Holland or you know, other countries where the kind of knowledge they have is supported in a more abundant way, shall we say. So, you know, if you don't have the horses, you can't run. And I think we have not, as a policy matter, thought about the balance between science requirements, availability of training grants, and the population of young scientists in the pipeline for life sciences. And as a result, we're in this kind of odd moment where there's misalignment among those ingredients, and as a result, a lot of our most talented young people 
in life sciences are caught in the middle, and you know they're going and working, going to work for hedge funds and strategy companies, and you know other businesses that value smart brains and retrains them. But you know the net loser is is ourselves. So if we can't address the supply side of talent, you know we'll be buying drugs that will be developed in Singapore and China and India and other places. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the quotes that really stood out in your book to me was that scientists have become professional beggars. Well, that's a quote from a guy named Philip Yeo, who oversaw the development of the Singapore Biopolis. And Singapore has invested in a tentpole project there that aspires to have 10,000 PhD scientists working in a really well-designed, modern complex in Singapore. And of course, 10,000 PhD scientists is roughly comparable to NIH. So that speaks to a couple of things. It speaks, most importantly, to the nonlinearity of innovation, the fact that a 5 million person, almost not quite 5 million person country, can mount a life sciences research effort that is comparable to NIH. So you don't have to be a big, rich country. I mean, Singapore is a small, rich country, but you don't have to have, you know, a U.S., Size treasury to be able to be a world-class player in life sciences. And what is really important is the pool of talent. So Yo, Philip Yo, whom I actually know quite well, so I don't disdain what I'm about to say, you know, he, he nicknamed himself, you know, in a Time Magazine interview, he nicknamed himself the serial kidnapper because he said his job was to run around the world talking to world-class talent and persuading them to move to Singapore. Now, if you're a senior scientist and you just have been told that you can make five times your salary, three times your salary, whatever, and design a brand-new lab and have oceans of very respectful, cooperative postdocs and be left alone to do what you want and that you never have to apply for a grant again, that's going to appeal to a lot of people. And in fact, you know, the former head of the National Cancer Institute and the former dean of the UC San Diego School of Medicine and his wife, who is a rock star genomics person, they, they're all in Singapore now. They haven't become Singaporean citizens, but they're driving big chunks of the Singaporean national strategy for innovation in life sciences. And, you know, talent is fickle these days. You know, talent can move around the world just by buying a plane ticket. And money can move around the world just by doing a couple of mouse clicks on your computer. So, you know, there's nothing sacred about America being the golden pillar of innovation in our global society anymore. But as we've talked, we're in denial that this is even a problem. Right, exactly. I mean, I think that people have a tendency to look at this problem in a very segmented way. So, oh, I guess we have to fix K through 12 education, right? Or, oh, you know, I guess, you know, our infrastructure is falling down. Maybe we ought to do something about it. But, you know, very few people have, in political life, have presented an integrated narrative of what the innovation challenge for our country is and what all the ingredients are that have to be woven together for a national innovation agenda to really hold water. We have assumed in this country for a long time that not having a strategy was the strategy that we needed because we're American, we're strong, and we're number one, and we don't need to think strategically. And I think that's kind of a dumb attitude, especially in the opening years of the 21st century, which we'd be better get over as quickly as possible. We've been speaking with Dr. John Kao, who's written a book called Innovation Nation, which discusses these very issues. Thanks, John. Thank you. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.
You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. This is Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. This week we will be speaking with Dr. Arthur Matus at the University of Minnesota Medical School. We will be talking about global lessons towards reducing the organ shortage in the United States. This is Dr. Mary Lushaz. Join me this week as I speak with Dr. William Collins from the CDC in Atlanta. We'll be talking about new vaccines for malaria and with them, the hope they carry for global eradication of this disease. I am Dr. Jay Goldstein, inviting you to tune in to GI Insights this week as we discuss what GI doctors need to know about probiotics. Our guest will be Dr. Richard Fiorek at the University of Alberta in Canada. Download complete program information, live streaming, on-demand podcasts, and free CME at ReachMD.com. ReachMD, online, on-demand, and on-air at XM160.